Amen. Wow. Thank you, team. Thank you, Karen, for that testimony. I needed to be reminded of that reality today. I often need to be reminded of that reality. As we were singing that, um, talking about the goodness of God running after us, pursuing us, surely goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's Psalm 23. Uh, Such beautiful, powerful, wonderful reminders for us to rehearse together as a community today. Welcome to CNBC. So glad to be worshiping with you together in community today. Uh, Excited to begin a new month. It is the month of February, and here we are already. Uh, It was Groundhog's Day the other day. I don't even know what the groundhog said. I didn't pay attention. Uh, And and I don't think it really matters that much because God's going to bring what God brings, whether it's six more weeks of winter or whether it's going to be spring soon. We're not sure, but the sun's out today. What a gorgeous day, a beautiful time to be in the house of the Lord together. New memory verse for the month of February, Psalm 119, verse 89. We actually get to spend some time in Psalm 119 next week, so we can uh, look ahead, work ahead a little bit, and share in these words this morning. Let's say it together. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens, Psalm 119, 89. Again, such hopeful reminders for us as we continue uh, our study through the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. We are on week two of a three-week mini-series through the book of Psalm. Last week, uh, we opened up in Psalm 1. Today, we're in Psalm 73, and like I shared, next week we'll be in Psalm 119 uh, to conclude this book of our series. Um, Wow, the goodness of God. Singing that this morning, I was reflecting on the lives of so many of you uh, who I know um, have been through some really hard, hard things. Uh, Some of you with us in the building today, some of you online. And one of the thoughts that came to my mind is that so many of us are trying so hard to live faithful lives. I was just on the phone with a congregant the other week and we were talking about some really difficult things in the life of her family and she was sharing some testimony of uh, just one really hard thing after another, after another, after another that was hitting over and over and over again in this season and it got to the point where she was on the farm and some things were going wrong that day and she looked up to, she said, I looked up to the heavens and I just said, I just yelled out, why, oh Lord, why me? And she's like, I felt so guilty. And I thought, no. No, God's, God's big enough. God's big enough to handle that. He, he already knows before we even say it. He already knows that that's the feeling in our heart. And so many of us are putting in the time to walk faithfully with the Lord. And we expect to see good. We expect to feel good. But what happens 
when it seems like the rough and the tumble characters of our lives are increasing? What happens to our hearts and our minds when it appears as though the villain is the victor? Sometimes we have feelings of discouragement, sometimes despair. We are rightly saddened by this difficult reality that sometimes in our lives, in this world, wickedness prevails. And sometimes, if we are honest, as our ancient hymn writer is today, we might even, just for a brief moment, look at that villain with envy. If only I had their power. If only I was in their position with their prestige. If only I had that sort of prosperity. Then. And as we move through the book of Psalms, we quickly come to learn that in this book, it's a large book, there are numerous categories of hymns for us to rehearse and sing together. There are eight on the screen before you today. Each type of these songs is important. Each is significant towards the guiding and directing of the lyrics and rhythms of God-fearing communities. First, yes, to the nation of Israel, but now today, also for the church. Today, we zoom in on a category of psalm that's known as lament. It's number eight. On the list. And when the faithful observe the advance of wickedness, when we see evil prevail, it is both good and right that we are moved to postures of grief and mourning. And in the Bible, when we stumble across these sorts of writings, where the authors are reflecting on the hard realities of life here on earth, they're often identified as lament. You might not realize that over one-third of the psalms in the Bible, over one-third are psalms of lament. It's pretty incredible. There's 150 psalms. And we might wonder, why? Why so many? And perhaps we would consider if the ancient communities of God gave this category such a priority, why is this a category that's seemingly ignored in Christian congregations across the world today? And yes, we live in the light of the great hope that's been secured on our behalf by Jesus, but even so, not every day ends in a way that celebrates, elevates, or highlights this good an eternal future that we've been promised. Some days are filled with or they end in war. There are countries in our world that are at war. People fighting violently. There's destruction, death, loss, sickness, affliction, suffering. Some days it appears as though the ways of death have prevailed over the ways of life. And when this is true, and when we feel this way, we find in the Lament Psalms permission to weep. 
permission to grieve, to express to God all of the hard feelings, that comment, why, Lord, why me? Why all of this? Why now? Everything that we're holding on to or attempting to hide from God that God already is aware of and is altogether familiar with. In the Bible, there is a pattern for lament. And generally, most of the laments that you'll find in the Bible will follow this pattern. First, there is a clear turning to God. So the author will first turn to God. Then they will unload their burden or their complaint. This is then followed by asking God to do something. God, intervene. Make this different. Change this hard reality. And then finally, the conclusion to trust and to praise God regardless of the outcome. Lament then is considered biblically as a form of praise. It does not detract from worship. It is an expected part of our community worship. It acknowledges the difficult realities of living as aliens and sojourners in this fallen space that we inhabit. Here's another hopeful angle to consider. These sorts of psalms, though encouraged and practiced here and now, will one day be all together unnecessary. Amen? We look forward to the day when every tear will be wiped away, where pain and suffering will be absent, where evil will never prevail. Well, but until then, until that day, Lament allows us to rehearse and to remind ourselves that things right now are not as they should be or as they will be. But God is able to restore the sick, to repair that which is wrecked, to reconcile the broken, to redeem the sinner. So as we accompany the text of Psalm 73 today, we seek wisdom for our own seasons of lament as they are revealed in the scriptures. And perhaps a question to explore would be how might the biblical practice of lament guide us through our own seasons of insecurity, despair, and doubt into the green pastures and still waters of hope, comfort, peace, and protection. Today's psalm is Psalm 73, and I'd invite you to turn there now or open it up on your devices, and as you're navigating to Psalm 73, uh, we're going to read the first 12 chapters, 12 chapters, first 12 verses of that psalm. We'll be here all day. We're going to read the first 12 verses of Psalm 73 this morning. Before we do, uh, let's go to the Lord and pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is helpful it is hopeful, it is true, it endures forever, it is a great bastion of hope in a world gone mad. And we turn to it now, Lord, and we know that you use this book by the work of your Holy Spirit as we study it together to change us, to move us, to grow us.
to form us into the image of your son, Jesus. What a beautiful reality. What a beautiful truth that that is all over the world today. Believers gather to study this word to be formed into the image of Jesus. And you are working. You are alive. You are active. You are with us. So good. And so, Lord, change us today through this study. Help us to learn what lament looks like and help us to learn how to be moved towards hope in our own seasons of grief and lament. We want to give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Psalm 73, verses 1 to 12, it's a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with folly. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Just like we expressed in the pattern of lament, Asaph's opening move, and he is a writer. Asaph's the name of a person. He's written this psalm. His opening move is to turn to the God of Israel and to remind his community that God is good to his people, to those whose motives are pure. What the writer has recognized is that the purity of heart and motives, true righteousness, is rarely rewarded and honored in this world. And so, he's opening up to God about his own inner turmoil. It's a struggle that's perhaps familiar with many of us. When it looks as though the ways of Jesus will not work. When turning our other cheek is met with the slap of the other hand, will we begin to envy the prosperity of the proud? Will we abandon the ways of Jesus because they no longer appear to work or have effect in our current context? Will we be faithful to follow even when it looks as though the proud rather than the humble are prospering. In Asaph's world, his lament is clear. The proud are prospering. They suffer no pain. They're the strong ones. They're eating well. They're not suffering like others do. Their arrogance is being rewarded. They're actually being gloated over. Their violence is promoted and encouraged even 
Verses 7 through 9 summarize his grievances well. We can review them again. He says in verse 7, Their prosperity causes them to do wrong. Their thoughts are sinful. They mock and say evil things. They proudly threaten violence. They speak as if they rule in heaven and lay claim to earth. I love that translation from the NET. Through Asaph's lens, then, it appears as if the earth belongs to the proud, the earth and everything within it. Some who he identifies as wicked are even willing to acknowledge the existence of God, though they live as if God is clueless or uninterested in our attitudes and behaviors. Choosing instead a life of ignorance or indifference to God's awareness of and attention to his creation. From Asaph's vantage point, he sees the wicked floating seamlessly down the lazy river. Anybody ever get on an inner tube on the lazy river before? So nice. There's no rocks, there's no rapids, the water's never too fast or too scary. You just lay in the tube, and around and around you go. You get in when you want. You get out when you want. It's so very nice. Hmm. The wicked's prosperity is increasing, and those who have attempted to live righteous and just lives have been found in captivity and oppression and suffering and poverty. Asaph's observations at times have led him into what is an erroneous and maybe even hopeless conclusion. Conclusions that perhaps have led to malformation in his own life as he's airing out grievances before God. He's sharing from the depths of his own struggles and we are both audience and participant Joining in song together, seeing something within Asaph's wrestling that reveals our own struggles, our own insecurities, our own questions. Why, God, why does evil prosper? If we're honest with ourselves, Asaph's heart and our own hearts are not all too unfamiliar with one another. Continue with me in verse 13 to 22 of Psalm 73. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been stricken, rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak, thus I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. Truly you've set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them. As phantoms. Did you know there were phantoms in the Bible? When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish 
and ignorant, I was like a beast towards you. The writer reflects, Surely in vain I've kept my motives pure and maintained a pure lifestyle. Are my desires and attempts to live a just and righteous life all in vain? Does it even matter if the wicked will prosper that I try to live faithfully? It appears as though the reward for faithfulness has been discarded in this world, or at very least, deferred. Verse 14 animates our minds with words from previous psalms, words that are also woven into the New Testament. Take a look again at verse 14 where Asaph says, I suffer all day long and am punished every morning. And perhaps your mind goes to Psalm 44, treated like sheep at the slaughtering block. And Romans chapter 8, a verse many of us are probably familiar with, as it is written, for your sake we encounter death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. These are not unfamiliar perspectives or views in our scriptures. Asaph's discouragement is alive. It's painful. It's affected him deeply. And as a leader, as a faith leader and a worship leader in his community, he's refrained from sharing publicly because he does not want to be a discouragement to others. He does not want to cause others to question the faithfulness of God. Yet here in this song, we get to see, as we look back, that he's openly and vulnerably sharing his heart, his feelings with the Lord. In verse 16, he remarks that he's attempted to make sense of all of this, and it is troubling to him. In many ways, the first book of our study was the book of Job, as we go through these five books of wisdom literature. And in many ways, Job's narrative can ring behind these words. The struggle of Job was similar. Why do the righteous suffer and the unrighteous prosper? And as we learned and discerned in Job, and we rehearse again here with Asaph, there are no easy answers, friends. If I could give them to you, this wouldn't be a question that has plagued the ages. There are no quick fixes. There are no solutions that could adequately resolve the injustices that exist as a result of sin in our world. Sin is real. It's not something we've made up. It's a part of every one of us. We are born in sin. And sin also has effect in this world we live in. When people turn away from God and they choose to walk in their own ways, they will reward the behaviors and attitudes that are in line with that which they are in pursuit of. Namely, their own glory. And friends, when we are in pursuit of our own glory, we reward and lift up things that benefit and glorify us even when those things come at the expense and suffering of others. This is what Asaph is witnessing. Pride rewards arrogance, while humility rewards suffering. One is convenient, 
and good for the growing of more, more power, more prestige, more prosperity. The other, humility, suffering, it's painful. It's inconvenient. It's good for a growing awareness of one's weakness, lowliness, and poverty. And there is a theme in the scriptures from the Old Testament through the wisdom literature into the New Testament, the words of Jesus and the authors who wrote to the first churches. And the theme that rings in all of scripture is this. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If we were to think about it in the opposite then, the proud oppose God as they dole out punishment on those seeking to live humbly. And this can be a discouragement to the righteous who are endeavoring to live humble and quiet, peaceable lives, faithfully following the calls and the ways of Jesus in this world. And as Asaph is inquiring of God, he's determined to move deeper inside of God's mind, to gaze with more focus and intention at God's nature and character. He talks about going into the sanctuary of God, the inner room, the inner space, the deepest place we can go. And as he does this, he begins to draw some hopeful conclusions And friends, I find that that's just the way that this goes. We sing a song about it all the time, it feels like. How's it go? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And what happens? The things of earth grow strangely dim. That's right. And the life is glory and grace. And that's not just true today as we sing it. It is true all the way, it is true forever. The writer of Psalm, looking deeper, gazing more intently on God. And all of a sudden, all of these really hard things in his life, you know, they don't just go away. That would be great. But the things that really matter and the end to those things that are really hard all begin to come become clear and make sense. Those who oppose and deny or live as though God is unaware, they have a destiny reserved for them. Asaph clings to a hope that God's justice will prevail. Look at verses 18 and 19. Surely you will put them in slippery places and bring them down to ruin. How desolate they become in a mere moment. Terrifying judgments make their demise complete. He's giving us useful figures of speech here to help us imagine or think collectively about times when it appears as though God is not responding to evil. He will. His ways will prevail. Verse 20 continues, When you wake up, God, when you wake up, you will despise them. Now, we know, right? This is, again, another figure of speech. God does not sleep okay so i'm trying to think how do we understand this line today this is kind of like a wait till your father gets home line, right like i heard that all the time growing up in my house and maybe a lot of you did too 
And you know, for me this weekend, I, I, was, I was really debating about writing my own lament this weekend because Sheila's, Sheila's away this weekend. I'll just throw that out there. So thank you. I heard all that mercy thrown my way. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Boy, yesterday was just, woo. I was like, wow. Somehow I landed on my feet at the end of the day back at home and everybody was in their beds and yeah. And I give the Lord glory for that. But maybe I should say, wait till your mother gets home. That would be the, that would be the faithful thing to say this weekend. But it's kind of like that statement. You see, when my mom would tell me at home, see, my grandfather's here today, so he knows about this. When my, when my mom would tell me at home, wait till your father gets home, I already realized I was in trouble. My mom knew I was in trouble. I knew I was going to eventually get my punishment. But for the time being, it could appear as though my poor attitudes and behaviors had prevailed over my mother. They had not. <laughs> I assure you, when dad came home, justice was served. <laughs> when God wakes up, God, when you rouse yourself, one day, all of this nonsense will be judged. One day, all of this madness will have to give an account to our God who demands justice. God's not slumbering. It may appear that the proud sometimes win. It may appear that the wicked sometimes have the upper hand. God is not asleep. His justice is grounded in his righteousness it brings into account those who stand against him, who antagonize or oppose him. God is good and loving and holy and perfectly just and righteous as well. Asaph is letting us into his own struggles, and in doing so, he's inviting us to be honest with ourselves and acknowledge that, yes, sin has treacherous and tormenting effects on our lives and the lives of those who are seeking to live faithfully in this world. There is a right response to sin and its effects in this world, and one of them is to lament to turn to God, to grieve, to mourn, to weep over the brokenness that we see. For some of us, this is all we can do. This is all we have the power to do when we turn and we look and we see brokenness in our families, brokenness in relationships, dismantled careers. We had expectations that have been unmet. Our minds have become entangled. Sometimes our hearts are addicted. We have depleted resources, defeated energies, overwhelmed by fear and anxiety sometimes feeling abandoned there's feelings of aggression and violence there's abuse and gossip and lying and slander and self-harming and destructive attitudes and behaviors and habits and a right response to all of these things is to turn to God and to weep and to grieve and to recognize that sin is a terrible thing that has terrible effect in this world. And to recognize 
in the same breath that God can do something about it. And he does. And he has in Jesus. Verse 21 is like the climax of this complaint. My spirit was bitter. My insides felt sharp pain. And sometimes it feels long. We grow impatient. It's hard. Sometimes we might even feel hopeless. Why? And Asaph is finding himself with conclusions similar to King Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. Conclusions that we reviewed and rehearsed in Job. You are God in heaven. Here I am on earth. When I don't understand, I'm just going to let my words be few. Safer. Verse 21, I was ignorant, I lacked insight, I was senseless as an animal before you. He's not dismissing or discrediting or belittling his pain or anguish over these matters. He simply resolves to remind himself that we, friends, church, we have a very limited perspective on these things. We get 90 years, maybe, maybe. so small just a little perspective and sometimes we have to remind ourselves that we are the created and God is the creator he is the potter we are the clay and even though we can't often make sense of these matters even though we have a limited perspective there are some peaceful hopeful comforting realities to cling to, the greatest of which for the church today is Jesus and God's response in Christ. And Asaph has some, as he concludes, as well. Landing on truths that we can all hold on to when life is hard and it appears as though evil is prevailing and we can't make sense of all that's happening around us. The end of Psalm 73, verses 23 to 28. All of these things, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you, they shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. This is at the beginning of this final stanza. This is one of the most important truths of all the scriptures that we can cling to in this world. 
It's a theme from the beginning to the end that we are with God and that God is with us. Amazing. As Asaph says it, I am continually with you. When life seems unsettling, when the parenting struggles are real, and they're real when it's one on seven, (laughs) when marriages are disrupted, when our lives feel without purpose and off track, when we face a barrage of attacks from people around us, from all different spaces, within and without, God is with us. And friends, we are with God. He holds our right hand. I love this verse. This is one of my life verses. Many, many years ago in my first church, I hung this poster on my wall. It has been a powerful reminder to me throughout my ministry. And I love that picture. I love it. Three children wandering into the mystery. This describes my faith journey so clearly. The oldest one taking the hand of one of the little ones and guiding him into the mystery. My goodness. That's my faith journey. Saved by the power of God through the person of Jesus and dwelt with the Holy Spirit, all three of which I can never fathom or comprehend as long as I'm here on this earth, but trusting that they have my hand, I am with them, and they are with me, and we are going together into the mystery. And I have to trust. Some days I have to walk by faith a lot more than others. Some days it's very clear. Other days it's very foggy. As Asaph rehearses all of this, he's attentive to God's word. And as his life is formed by its power and the, the, the truth that's in it, God will lead him. And God will lead us to positions of honor, positions that have true worth. God will lift the lowly. You know what's interesting? God has lifted the lowly. He's lifted you. He's lifted me. For those of us who are in Christ, we've been raised and seated with Christ in the heavenlies. It's a beautiful thing. And so Asaph's becoming laser-focused as he's reflecting on these powerful realities, and he lands on these questions. Who do I have in heaven but you? Who? Who can I turn to that's going to give me more hope in this time than you? Who should I desire more than you, God? There's nobody else that could carry me the way you could through this time. At the beginning of his lament, there was a brief moment when the position and the prosperity of the wicked looked desirable, not so anymore. He's journeyed through his grief. God has taken his hand and led him to this place of great confidence. 
No one in heaven but God, no one on earth to desire more than him. And why? Verse 26. Why? Because my heart and my flesh, they grow weak, they fail, but God always. We're not supposed to use that word in arguments. But we can use that word with God. God always protects my heart and gives me stability. Friends, this has been the testimony of our lives, Sheila and I, of our life in ministry, of our life in parenting. Some people ask, a lot of people ask, how do you do it? I don't know. There's no magic formulas. There's no things I could concoct for you up here except to say this to you. God is faithful. That's all I could say to you. God is faithful. We go to bed every night. We are so tired. Sometimes we feel like we're spinning like a top, like we've been through the ringer. Did you ever hear that one? (laughs) Sometimes like we're in a washing machine and we can't get our head up above water to catch our breath. And every morning we wake up and we have the endurance and the energy to continue. Where does that come from? It comes from God. That's it. He does this. He carries us. He holds us. He sustains us. He supplies for us. He gives in abundance. He protects us. We are protected in Him. One of the Psalms says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it, and they are safe. So as, late, as Asaph concludes in verse 28, but as for me, God's presence is all I need. I've made the sovereign Lord my shelter as I declare all of the things you have done. There are some hopeful conclusions, even in our grief. We are with God continually. God guides us. He leads us to real positions of honor. He protects and stabilizes our hearts and lives. He will act justly with the wicked. We can make God our shelter. And when our lives are formed in this fashion, our lives become a proclamation to the world of God's goodness, righteousness, and faithfulness. Friends, one of the greatest ways to testify to the reality to give answer to the reality and the veracity of the gospel. One of the most effective ways we could do this as our team comes today is to be faithful in suffering and to be faithful in the hard times. To hold fast, as Karen said this morning, to cling to the goodness of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this example, for this testimony. Father, thank you for being a perfect father. One that sees and hears and knows his children perfectly. Lord, before we even say it, before we even reveal the depths of our hearts to you, you already know. You already know. You know our struggles. You know our pains. You know our grief. You know our despair. You know when we're feeling weak, 
when our energy's gone. And you restore us and lift us up and renew us. So many things. You walk with us. We thank you for the great hope that we have in Jesus that we can cling to him in any season when things seem off kilter and out of place, when it appears that evil's prevailing. Lord, we know the truth. Your son is victorious and he has made us overwhelmingly conquerors with him. So even in hard times, Lord, even when it's foggy, could you take our hands? Could you lead us through those deep, hard places and move us to the space of hope where we can remember, be reminded of the life of Jesus, our living Savior, the one that's alive in us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.